Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. No train. What? No train. Okay. We've been here forever and still. No train. Well, not forever. Like five minutes. Still. No train. Oh. I see what you're doing over there, Beckett. I thought it was clever. Let's just leave the leave the absurdity to the actors tonight, okay? All right, all right. No train. Ugh, you're ridiculous. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the show, Waiting for Godot. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into Stage Whisper. Nothing to be done. Nothing to be done. Well, except talk about our show today. That would be Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. There have been several productions of this show that have played on Broadway, but for today's episode, we will be focusing on the 2009 production. So, let us first set the stage for our simple but absurd show. The play was originally written by Beckett in French and completed in 1949. It was then translated by Beckett himself into English and premiered in London in 1955. According to a poll conducted by the British Royal National Theatre in 1998, this play is the most significant English language play of the 20th century. The play is a tragic comedy which invokes the intended response of both the tragedy and the comedy in audiences. This show also happens to be the quintessential play for Theater of the Absurd. Theater of the Absurd is a post-World War II genre of plays that focuses on ideas of existentialism and express what happens when, women, when human existence lacks meaning or purpose and communication breaks down. The play's structure tends to be a circle, meaning it usually finishes where it started. The word absurd has been defined as something that has no purpose, goal, or objective. In a post-Nazi occupied France, it could be understandable that many felt purposeless or meaningless. Samuel Beckett was a playwright originally from Ireland. He traveled throughout Europe in the 1930s and was in Paris when World War II broke out. He joined the French Resistance in which he worked as a courier. All right, now with that being said, let's set up our design team for the show. The set was by Santo Lacuasto, costumes by Jane Greenwood, 
Light by Peter Kazorski, and sound design by Dan Moses Schreier. Hair by Tom Watson, makeup by Angelina Avalon, playwright Samuel Beckett, and directed by Anthony Page. Now, the play first opened on Broadway on April 19, 1956 at the Golden Theater. It ran on Broadway for 60 performances and closed on June 9, 1956. The... The revival we're speaking about opened on April 30th, 2009 at Studio 54, closing July 12th, 2009 after running for 84 performances. The show would be nominated for three Tony Awards that season. So with that, let's venture into our show. opens with two men, Vladimir and Estragon, meeting by a lifeless tree whose species is later speculated to be that of a willow. Estragon notifies Vladimir of his most recent troubles. He spent the previous night lying in a ditch and received a beating from a number of anonymous assailants. The duo discuss a variety of issues none of any apparent severe consequence, and it is revealed that they are awaiting a man named Godot. They are not certain if they have ever met Godot, nor if he will even arrive. Pozo and his slave Lucky subsequently arrive and pause in their journey. Pozo tries to engage both men in conversation. Lucky is bound by a rope held by Pozo, who forces Lucky to carry his heavy bags and physically punishes him if he deems his movements too lethargic. Pozo states that he is on the way to the market at which he intends to sell Lucky for profit. Following Pozo's command, Think! Lucky performs a dance and a sudden monologue. A torrent of academic-sounding phrases mixed with sounds such as Close to the original French for crap, 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 crap. Lucky's speech in a cryptic manner seems to reference the underlying themes of the play. Pozo and Lucky soon depart, leaving Estragon and Vladimir to continue their wait for the elusive Godot. Soon, a boy shows up and explains to Vladimir and Estragon that he is a messenger from Godot, and that Godot will not be arriving tonight, but tomorrow. Vladimir asks about Godot, and the boy exits. Vladimir and Estragon decide that they will also leave, but they remain on stage as the curtain falls. And that is the end of Act 1. It's the following day as Act 2 starts. Vladimir and Estragon are again waiting near near the tree, which has grown a number of leaves since the last we'd seen it, an indication that time has passed since the events contained in Act 1. Both men are still awaiting Godot, Lucky and Pozo eventually reappear, but they, but not as they were. Pozo has become blind, and Lucky has become mute. Pozo cannot recall ever having met Vladimir and Estragon. Lucky and Pozo exit shortly after their spirited encounter, leaving Vladimir and Estragon to go on waiting. Soon after, the boy reappears to report that Godot will not be coming. 
The boy states that he has not met Vladimir and Estragon before, and he is not the boy who talked to Vladimir yesterday, which causes Vladimir a great deal more frustration than he exhibited during their encounter in Act 1. Vladimir implores the boy to remember him the next day so as to avoid a similar encounter. The boy exits. Vladimir and Estragon consider suicide, but they do not have a rope. They decide to leave and return the day after with a rope, but again they remain as the curtain falls on the final act. The The end. end. Before we get into the parts that we like and we don't like, a quick note to our listeners. Um, I'm sure you're all aware, we are back here in New York City in a lovely apartment (laughs) now. And the sound you may be hearing going on in the background as we record is our lovely washer. Uh, It just loves stage whispers so much it wants to make an appearance. Yeah, I mean, at least, you know, the window isn't open, you can hear traffic, you know. But as we're recording... Uh, of course, in those quiet moments, that's when the washer decides to be like, I have something to say. And I'm like, <laughs> great. But unfortunately, the only room that we are able to record in is here in our living dining kitchen room. Um, and if you don't know a New York apartment, well, hey, it's a one bedroom. And literally, that means it has one bedroom and then one other room. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we apologize if you hear that. But back to the show. Um, the other thing I want to make a quick note of, as we go on, you may hear us refer to the um, two main characters, Vladimir and Estragon, as Didi and Gogo, uh, because yes. that's what they refer to themselves as in the uh, in the script. That's a good point to make as well. So let's start by discussing the parts we liked or we didn't like. Um, okay, I'm going to get into this <laughs> later. This is the first play I ever saw on Broadway. For, and I'll get into why later, but um, and I think it's strange that the first show play that I ever saw on Broadway was an absurdist piece of theater, but it was you who picked it out, mm-hmm. and I wasn't sold ever on it until I saw Nathan Lane was in it, and I was like, well, Nathan Lane, of course. And after sitting through and seeing it, it was a clever story. Is very frustrating as there's like no real resolution and like the actual story itself is not traditional and what I was expecting. Like the, I, I don't want to say the characters don't go on a journey because they kind of go on a journey, but at the same time they really it's don't. A, it's an interpersonal journey, not a journey we can like experience with them. Right. We but have to watch them experience the journey. No one necessarily grows. They don't necessarily like learn a lesson or the moral of the story is. And I think that's what literally, not to make a pun, but you are literally waiting for something to happen and nothing ever happens. Mm-hmm. And it's so frustrating. But that being said, there's so many multiple interpretations to make out of it. In fact, I remember leaving that theater with you. And when we started discussing it, I was like, no, 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 you're way off base. What the actual meaning of this was. And that's the first time that I went, oh, my God, we saw a show. We both got two different things out of it. Right, because that's what absurdist theater does, because it's about existentialism. Um, Also, the other thing I just want to mention while we're talking about 
frustrating and multiple interpretations. There are a lot of different interpretations on how to say the word Godot or Gado. Yeah, I think I've already said it both. It's regionally ways. correct. Yeah. So just, it just depends. Don't say Godot. Godot. Yeah, no. The T does not, like, it's French. Like, you drop the last right, 17 it's letters. Godot. <laughs> Godot. Um, I think it's said that Americans tend to focus on um, Gado. And then the, the Linda, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then the Europeans tend to go. Uh, Focus on the second syllable. Yes. Godot and we're Gado. Yeah, Gado versus Godot. This is not a linguistics and podcast. Listen, <laughs> I, though I would love to make it a linguistics podcast. Don't get me started. Now, see, I thought that this was about. And especially I got this at the end when the two men wanted to commit suicide. It's two desperate men, right, mm-hmm. who they're just at their limit and they want to kill themselves and what they're actually waiting for is God. Godot is God. They're waiting for God to arrive and take them away to paradise to a better life. They're literally waiting for God. Um, that's what I interpreted as the first time I saw it. Um and then Pozo and uh, Estragon. Lucky. Lucky. Thank you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, wait, that's not right. Were like, they were the ones who were already there. Like, they were in betweeners. Mm-hmm. They already had seen the promised land. They could go between, if you will. They were almost like angels. Mm-hmm. So you got a lot of, like, I got spiritual things out of it. Like a lot of Christian spirituality right. out of it. That's and that, the first time I read it. That's kind of what I got. Because, you know, nothing to be done, nothing to be done. There's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of direness. And the fact that they wanted to end it all, the only way to do this is end it all. But it's like, what are you waiting for? Why do you continue to wait for someone? What are you waiting for? And it comes back to the fact that, what is the thing keeping them there? It's faith. It's faith that Gatto is going to come. And I also thought that the little boy was like the angel Gabriel, delivering a message mm-hmm. from God. And that that's kind of, the, like I said, the first time I saw it. Right. And actually, I will say, there have been a lot of people who do speculate that Beckett meant the little boy to be Godot. Um, now, see, we talked about that, and mm-hmm. that's when I went, another twist on that then is it's a test. How long will you continue to wait Mm-hmm. How long, what is your endurance? You know, God tests people. I mean, we all know the phrase, God never gives you more than you can actually handle. And I know this is getting a little gaudy, but, you know, mm-hmm. at the time, the reason why I thought this, when I learned about where absurdism came from, especially post-World War II, France, and everything, and this world of hopelessness, everybody wanted to cling to something, and there's no shame in clinging on to Christianity. So mm-hmm. I thought this would be a, Maybe that was the interpretation. But now, now, that being said, since then I've had to read the play for school, and I have seen a second production of it. And I realized that my developed theatrical mind has since kind of gone, hold on, that's not a bad interpretation, however. Well, and just before we get into, you know our later brains discussing it. I want to talk about what I got out of it the first time um, because I am not a religious person. Um, And so for me, a lot of it was about absence of religion. Like, just take that out of the equation whatsoever. This is a story about 
humanity. This is a story about um, two people who, for lack of a better term, like could have changed their situation if they would have just gotten up and done something about their situation. Mm-hmm. Like Pozo. You know, Pozo basically said, this is what I want to do. He got out and did it. He's doing great. Now, Lucky, on the other hand, to me, also represented, um, you know, minorities and women because they're constantly being drug along with the patriarchal idea that, you know, of, I guess, the this whole masculine idea that, um, or patriarchal idea that, you know, men are go-getters and everyone else comes along to their will. So that's how I interpreted it the first time I saw it. And then you had these two guys that were just kind of sitting around and just letting it happen rather than getting up and either doing something about that or doing something about their situation. But it was, um, for me, it felt like more like a call to, like a mirror to hold up to yourself of where are you in life? Are you going to do something or are you just going to sit by and let it happen? Well, see, but I'll throw a wrench in that, though, to be, to... To not to crash the party, but Opozo and 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 Lucky are the go-getters and whatnot. Think about how they appear in Act Two. One is blind, one is mute. So if they're the go-getters and they change their situation, some higher power or something punish them for going against the grain. That could obviously be a dark interpretation of going against the norm, going against the status quo. If you don't do what you are told to do, or you should do. There is, there is a, a, a consequence to that. Mm-hmm. So yes, they get to wander around and do what they want to do, but at the end of the day, now uh, Pozo is blind and Lucky is mute. Mm-hmm. They've lost something. So that could also be fair. It's not all wine and roses, but it's one of those... I mean, it, it's a dark reality of life. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get everything you want, so what are you willing to give up? Exactly. Exactly. And that's kind of what I got out of it. Now, you've written down two old men with dementia. Uh, yes. So, um, in some people's interpretation, um, this is a snapshot of two men with dementia trying to figure out the missing links in their life, um, or the things that they can't remember, you know, sitting there, nothing to be done. It's kind of like, um, in Golden Girls when Sophia Petrillo mm-hmm. sitting on the bench with Alvin, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they are having conversations, but they're also not having conversations with each other, right. but then they're coming back together mm-hmm. constantly, What like dementia can, because... You know, you can't remember things from your past, but there are also some people with dementia who who dementia who completely lose the ability to be able to speak properly. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there has been some interpretation that, um, I mean, and this is before we had diagnosed dementia or anything like that. We just knew like senileism. Right. And so, but I also think that to play on that, you know, this is coming off of a a, a world tragedy a world trauma just like what we're kind of going through now like we all get trauma from events even if we don't recognize that they're traumatic Mm -hmm. and they can have negative effects on the brain Mm -hmm. so could this be two old men who are having a conversation and sometimes you know the the interpretation is that uh pozo and lucky are um like the younger their younger selves it could be their younger selves, or it could be people coming in and out of their lives. It could be, you know, the like their children, or um, 
nurses, aides, and stuff like that. Um, so it's just another interpretation, which, I mean, I could get it. I'd be interested to see, you know, Ian McKellen and uh, Patrick Stewart did this in repertory with, um, was it Old Hats? I can't remember the other show they did, but I'd be interested to see if they maybe took that approach mm-hmm. in doing it that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we should take a trip uptown to old San Juan Hill, <laughs> to Lincoln Center, where the Performing Arts Library is, and they'll have a recording of it, and maybe we should sit down one afternoon and watch the Patrick Seward and McKellen performance of Waiting for Godot. Right, because I think I think that would be great, because it'd be nice to just see other people's in, in, uh, interpretations, which is one thing I love about existentialism. They're, the possibilities are limitless. It's all about the person or the people who are conducting and what they're conducting to. This is a lot more open to interpretation versus some other shows. Yeah. I, I mentioned San Juan Hill, so West Side Story, that it's a little bit more, the scope is a little bit more narrow, you know. I, you only have so much room to maneuver in where with this show it's like, sure, put it on the moon if you want. Mm-hmm. That's how you really want to do it. Um, I guess the text implies that Pozo may be Godot, but he's not. Well, and that's where, if you are going from a Christian perspective, it could be, you know, false, um, false gods. False prophets or is false what you're prophet. going for, yeah. like an event, televangelist kind of. Exactly. Oh, okay, okay. See, because I, I was reading that. That was one of the things he wrote down, and I was like, no, I don't think Pozo is God. I, don't, I never got that. And that makes a lot more sense. That, yes, and of course then, if that's the case, Lucky, who's carrying all the luggage and everything... Could be the followers, the fake followers who carry the burden of followers. Exactly. One of the commandments is, you should have no other god before me, and you shouldn't worship false idols. They're carrying that burden of doing both of those. And then when they come back, the fact that they're mute, Mm -hmm. you know, they can't bear bear witness anymore. Exactly. And if you are going with that interpretation, that's where seeing the little boy as Godot, because Children tend to be the most untainted. They, they tend angelic. To be, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that is one way you could take it um, if you are going for a more, um, <clears throat> you know, if you are going for a more religious take. I like um, that. There are also some people that have interpreted it as a allegory for the French, uh, sorry, for the Cold War and the French, French Resistance. Okay, now explain this one to me because I feel like the French Resistance is World War II. I understand what the Cold War is, but I feel like there's, it time-wise, and I could be wrong, I am not a historian, but I feel like there's a bit of a separation between the end of World War II and the start of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So, explain this. Um, so, basically, it's a lot of sitting and waiting for disaster to strike. So we finish one disaster and they're all just waiting for the next one to hit because we've come off of World War One. Mm-hmm. there was time that passed, we had World War Two. It's ended, so now they're like, what's the next thing? And do? basically, it's, you know, it's how we're sitting, waiting to push the button to destruct. Interesting. Which is what that suicide would be in the end. Mm-hmm. Because in I think one thing that World War II taught us is that to win something or for the common good, we had to destroy something and do something like what we did with the uh, A-bombs in Japan. Mm-hmm. We had to sacrifice a huge bit of our humanity to do that and so that's where this could be an allegory of Mm. what had happened what 
will happen, what's continued to happen, um, and how uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and what does that corruption of power do to the people who are sitting there with nothing, they can't do anything about it, except for push the button. Mm-hmm. So, because, you know, when someone says, hey, let's fire the missiles, they, they don't, they're not the ones who actually push the button. And so, I guess it's safe to say that the majority of this show is, um, you know, plot discussion, because, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, like, we're gonna go into the set, the lights, the costumes, all that stuff, but really, you know, this plot and the direction that's taken with it is really where the interpretation of the show comes from. So with that, let's go ahead and move on to just a few of the other elements. Starting with the set, it was very basic, it was very desolate, you know. Honestly, to me, it felt like a um, like an enclosure at the zoo. Oh, a little yeah, bit, yeah. where like the giant rocks and everything, yeah. Uh-huh, but then they also like tried to like paint like a gray sky because it's like, oh, the the whatever's in the cage, like right. less not so sunny days, you right, know, or right, something right. like that. Like it just it felt very much like a cage. Yeah, and speaking of like the grays and that, the lights, it was very gray and blacks and browns. It's just depressing. Like if you just think of depressing colors or that depressing mood that's what it was it was not there was no hint of happiness mm-hmm. you know truly the brightest light we saw was when they had the spots on the characters purely for the purpose of being able to see mm-hmm. but it definitely was just bleak lighting yeah. um the other thing is is with the costumes um beckett himself said that he doesn't know much about gogo and Didi, but what he does know is that they are wearing bowlers. Which Gogo and Didi, we already mentioned that they're Vladimir and Estragon. Yes. Um, and so I think that that's a very interesting, um, you know, thing that they would, he sees them wearing bowlers. Yeah. Like, why does he see them wearing bowlers? And I think that that itself could be a whole big interpretation, because what exactly does the bowler hat mean? That's a whole, yeah, I'm not going to go on a whole little branch of that. We're just going to keep. Right. Um, the other thing is, is with the costumes, um, everyone's looked very ugh and bleak and mitt and ragged. And yeah, and blended into the set, except for Pozo and the little boy. Yes. Which is why I think you can interpret that one of them is Gato, Gato and one of them is pretending to be Gato. I can see that. Also worth mentioning is the boots. Yes, the boots. Because uh, Didi, who is, I believe it's Estragon. No, uh, Gogo is Estragon. Didi is Vladimir. Okay, so Gogo, I think, is the one I'm thinking of, who takes off his boots. He complains about his feet, takes off his boots. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that was a big deal because he leaves his boots mm-hmm. at the end of Act 1. Um, so yeah. when he comes back on at the beginning of Act 2, his boots are still there. Mm-hmm. And, and you're kind of like, and they start the whole act again, and you're like, wait, but your boots are there. You can't take off your boots again. Mm-hmm. You know? So I feel like the boots were important. Of course, the boots were included in the playbill. Oh, no, the suitcase was The there. suitcase was in the playbill. Right. But, yeah, and that was Nathan Lane's character. Um, oh, no, 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 it's the other. Yeah, was, Nathan. Was he the one that took off his boots? I thought it was the other guy. Nah. Okay. And then lastly, the direction. And what I love is the direction was so minimal, which was... Great. There was, you know, so little 
at first, like, I was really bored because they were just, like, sitting there and they were just talking. And literally, it was like watching Meisner work, you know, where you sit and you look across at your partner and you say the same word back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's boring, but apparently mm-hmm. it's a good... I, I must not be smart enough to understand it entirely. But they're sitting there and they're just saying their lines and that. And I'm like, this is kind of boring. Someone throw a pie. But the more I just kind of sat there and I let it happen, I was like... Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This is smart. It, this is the opposite of what I normally want to, I normally see, which is the big flash, bang, boom, bam. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't appreciate it then, but I do now. It's, it's stillness. Mm-hmm. It's the stillness that I really appreciated. So the show featured some very, very notable cast members, including Nathan Lane, Bill Irwin, John Goodman, and John Glover. So let's talk about the show uh, and the impact that it had on theater and history. So theatrical impact. It's a unique show that brought a different kind of theater to the Broadway stage. Well, and this is the quintessential absurdist play. There are um, a lot of plays that are considered absurdist, but this one is the one that defined the genre. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, that's... Pretty big in and of itself. And considering how many Broadway shows we, we've seen and we see, we don't, there's not a lot of absurdist theater that gets done on Broadway. You're going to find that primarily off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that it was done here on Broadway, you know, that's fabulous. That's great. Um, hurrah that they brought that to the stage. A, good, a great way to balance that out for audiences, you know? Um, this allowed audiences to see big-name actors in roles they don't normally see them in. Right. The acting chops of Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone always, you know, we're still thinking of him from the producers. Yep. Um, or and Guys and Dolls. Exactly. Or... And to be able to see him in this role just really shows, I mean, those of us who are huge Nathan Lane fans know his acting chops. But yeah. But if you hadn't seen him in anything other than his, you know. This wasn't a comedy this yeah. wasn't, and this wasn't your typical run-of-the-mill like show. You know, this was truly. I mean, it's one thing to watch it, a whole other thing to perform it. It's like Shakespeare. You've got to know what you're saying. You yourself, while you're up there, have to know what you're saying and what you're doing. And mm-hmm. not just Nathan Lane, John Goodman. You know, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, seeing the and well, the entire cast, seeing these men perform, I was just like. I have a whole nother appreciation for what you do. Mm-hmm. You don't just get up there and tell a joke or whatever. Well, I, you you are true masters of your craft. And the way, like, just in memory alone, being able to repeat the scene as it goes, but knowing where the, like, the codas are to leave and take the exit route to move on to the next part, I couldn't do that. I would get stuck in the same loop over and over and over right. again. So... In a world of blockbuster and huge mega shows, a very simple, basic, bare-bones show was a huge dichotomy and a great opposite that balanced out the Broadway theater. Most Broadway theater or most Broadway shows, you know, you look at the price tag it takes to put on them, mm-hmm. millions. And, and that's not just musicals. I mean, that's plays. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
you look at the show, just the basic plays that are done and the set pieces and the costumes and this, that, and the other. This was four men. And a child. And a child and a set that, you know, there was no flying in. There was no set pieces that moved. It was as basic as... I mean, we were a step away from just having two black boxes on the stage and, you know, Mm -hmm. and... To me, that's also theater at its core. We are here to tell a story. It's not about everything else. They help. Mm-hmm. It's about the story, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that um, the most important part about this show um, being done, um, not just when it originated, but continuing to be done, is um, it asks why. Mm-hmm. It asks why human existence. It asks, it asks why without any uh, modifiers or clarification on anything about it. And inter- you know, theater can be entertaining, and watching theater to be entertained is great. But being challenged and thought. and having provoked thoughts, uh, thought provoking discussions afterwards can also be a greater merit than just being entertained. Like, escapism is great, but also theater as a way to reflect on yourself and the society and the community you live in is also really important. Just to tie into that real quick, I remember when I worked uh, in Salt Lake City on the play Sweat by Lynn Nottage. And I remember I was dressed in that show, and I remember leaving one night, and there were audience members leaving, and a guy said, I really didn't care for that show i didn't get it it didn't make sense to me you know all i really got out of it is apparently you know something about racist or you know challenging white fragility or something of that nature and i literally just wanted to stop him and be like the show wasn't for you like it's not a show written to you as an audience member but if you left the theater with questions like why does this exist or I'm feeling guilty because the white character in the show made the Hispanic character feel bad or the black character feel bad or something like that. That's the purpose of the show. It has a different message for each audience member. You're not meant to leave the theater all the time feeling happy-go-lucky. Sometimes you are meant to leave the theater and have questions or feelings or something. That's the power of art. That's mm-hmm. the power of theater. It should... Sometimes it should leave you shaken. Not stirred. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad that, joke. When there, when there is great travesty in our society, in our world, sometimes it's our job as artists to show that mirror to society and go, this is what's happening, or this is, or even this is why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily a place to offer the solution, or- but just a, another way, another medium to connect to audiences and explain... There's an issue going on, and we have to fix it. Right, or the fact that, you know, for instance, like this show uh, is a result from shared trauma, you know, and what is the point in, you know, like talking about your trauma and helping, maybe talking through your trauma will not only help you move past it, but also maybe help someone else in the process. And speaking of helping someone else, let's talk about the societal impacts. Yes. It challenged audiences to think about what their purpose in life or society was. Mm-hmm. That's a big question to ask. You know, mm-hmm. and 
audiences really aren't getting those tough questions to leave and wonder what your existence is. Hey, we're getting meta here on Broadway, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and also um, it it uh, either introduced a younger or new generation um, or exposed the older generation or a new generation about what absurdism is and what absurdist theater is about. Yes. And it made people appreciate what they had, especially while we were still in the middle of a recession and coming out of a recession. You know, it really gave you that moment to reflect and be like, oh, wow, I actually do have something. Or I'm not as worse off as I thought I was. Yeah. That whole count your blood thing, you know. Yeah. So is the show still relevant? Yes. Yeah. Because it's it's a question asking show. Yeah. It's it. It will always be relevant because the the show exists to pose the question of why, and that will never not be relevant to people. And just like back in two thousand nine, as we emerge from the pandemic and realize that we have our basic needs met, we now must look inward and figure out what our greater purpose in life and society are. You know, right? Because one time the. We've been waiting for Godot for so long. Maybe it's a good time to question what we're waiting for or why we're waiting. or Right, because it's hard to ask these questions of why and how and when when you have, when you're worried about food, water, shelter, um, space. You know, those are the four things that you need as a human to be able to, um, to be healthy, to be um, successful, to be, to live so once you're comfortable to be confident well and yeah and to be the best you you can be so once you have those four things locked down and you don't have to worry about where they're coming from then and only then is when you can start to reflect inward and ask why yeah As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we both saw the show back in 2009. And as I mentioned, this was my first play on Broadway. I said I'd say why. So up until this point, I only saw musicals. Now, the reason why I only saw musicals was because I felt like especially seeing the quality of work that was being done out in Salt Lake, whether it be at Pioneer Theater Company or what was coming on Broadway across America, what have or you. Or Slack. Yeah. Anybody out there could do a play just as good as what was being done on Broadway. But a musical, which cost infinitely more money, was much harder to do in that local regional level. So I was like, I'd rather spend my money on seeing a Broadway musical than a Broadway play that someone could do just as good, if not better. But... My wife, Hope, was like, no, we really need to go see this show. And I was like, mm, all right, and Nathan Lane's in it. And after we saw this play, I was like, oh, I got to go see more plays. Mm-hmm. I was wrong. I was dead wrong. Broadway plays are just as good as Broadway musicals. And Well, and I feel like the important thing is that they are the forefront of the direction that we're going with plays. They start 
in off-Broadway and out of town, and then they make their way to a national stage of Broadway because everyone recognizes the location. And being on Broadway, I hate to say it, for lack of a better term, gives it... Credibility uh, or notoriety? Validation. Ah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what started me down the road of just really falling in love with scripts, with reading scripts. I'll go to the drama bookshop over there on 40th Street. 39th Street now, give a little pl- shameless plug, mm-hmm. or even to um, the Broadway stores there on 44th, mm-hmm. and I'll just randomly start grabbing scripts off the shelf, and I'll buy five at a time, and I'll just read them. I have like 200 something plays that like when I work at a show, I'll just sit backstage, and I'll just be reading scripts, and I'm like, why are you reading that show? I just found it, and some have not been fantastic, but I found a lot of ones, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Why has it never been done on Broadway? Right. You know, there there have been several like that that I'm like, this needs to be done. And uh, when I read where it's been done, it's only been done regionally. I'm like, but it's so good. So now I've got that mindset of mm, Broadway's great, but maybe it's not the, the victory lap that I thought it was for plays. But that being said, the, a Broadway play is on a whole nother level. I really, it opened my eyes. Then you've paired that with um, seeing Nathan Lane. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that like was absolutely above. I was over the moon. Nathan Lane and John Goodman and everything like that, and I was able to get Nathan Lane's autograph afterwards, which was incredible. You know that playbill is still hanging up on our wall, back at our place till we pack everything up back in Salt Lake. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was. It was wonderful at Studio 54. I loved it. I loved the whole experience. Um, for me, I really, I just remember sitting up there and just really being able to go, like, it was almost like a Zen meditation for me, just going into my brain and starting to think about the words, think about what I was hearing, trying to connect the dots. And I don't know, for me, because uh, this was the summer before I started college and going into my theater degree. Um, that I really, you know, I was like, oh, I can understand this stuff. I am smart enough um, because that's always been something that I've worried about is, you know, like I was a first generation um, college student. And now I realize, you know, on the other side of it, college doesn't make you smart. College teaches you to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but me, young me, before I started college and learned this, was, oh, I, if I can't understand this, I'm not smart enough to go to college. And it was never about being smart enough. And this play started me on that journey of realizing that s- being smart actually just means being brave enough to ask why. Yeah. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world continues to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see this show. You'll be able to catch Waiting for Godot at a theater near you sometime hopefully soon probably check your colleges and uh your lesser known theater companies we'd also like to give a quick update on the reopening of broadway welcome to, to broadway roundabout theater's production of trouble in mind now playing at the american airlines theater broadway is coming back in full force and the lights have never been brighter We'll be continuing to share special episodes covering our return to Broadway and help usher back the Great White Way. You can catch these being released every Tuesday and Saturday. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. 
And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, AJ Super, Jesse Spillane, DJ Block and Don Pemberton and Billy Murray. Yeah.